Surf's Up. It's spring break here on Question Field. Welcome back, everyone. I am Brian, and I'm joined as always by Campbell. And today is a well, today's a special episode for two reasons. First reason is Campbell, we have our first user listener submitted question. Extremely exciting stuff. Extremely exciting. And there's another reason this episode is so special, and it is because we are joined by our first guest. Hello. That's right. Yeah, um, we've got uh, James here, James Moore, who is also a PhD student um, at Cambridge with me. So we, you know, have had many a lunch break uh, spent in the same place. <laughs> um, Very nice. Uh, so yeah, welcome, James. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, just to just to give everybody an idea of what this has taken. <laughs> to pull together. <laughs> it is currently 6.40 in the morning for me here in New York. Campbell, it's... It's, uh, yeah, 20 to 9 p.m. Uh, for me in, in Sydney. I'm currently here on a, on a bit of a holiday. And then James is in the UK. So yeah. what's it? Like? 11.40 a.m. for me. So, right. so it's a per- perfectly reasonable time, <laughs> nice. really. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had to, we had to yeah. work around the, the guest here. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, glad it's working for you, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, seriously, thank you for being here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exciting stuff. James, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about who, who you are and what, what you're doing in your, in your PhD and that kind of thing. Sure, okay. Um, yeah, so, so I'm James Moore. Uh, I'm a PhD student at Cambridge, uh, as, as Campbell already mentioned. Uh, so I'm finally a PhD student now, so I've been at Cambridge quite a long time now. Um, and I specifically work in particle physics, um, uh, specifically working on uh, proton structure uh, with uh, Dr. Maria Ubiali. Uh, we work mainly on the interplay between proton structure and the discovery of new physics. So, um, so new particles beyond the standard model, uh, and we see is there room inside protons for new physics, basically. So, um, to 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 make it sound as uh, sexy as possible, but uh, <laughs> the day to day the day to day reality is more to do with uh, uh, fitting and kind of uh, statistics and this kind of thing. So, yeah. Um. <laughs> that, that was a great intro to to what you do, things, <laughs> James. And you, you also did your undergrad at Cambridge, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. So, oh, so I, and, and yeah. you're you're also staying there after your PhD for for your first postdoc. Is that is that correct? That's right. That's right. So that will be it'll be a long time at Cambridge. So yeah, yeah so part of the furniture, but yeah, yeah. A very tried and true Cambridgean. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. James, let me ask you real quick because. Um, Campbell was completely unfazed by this, but we talked on a previous podcast about how uh, Newton's tree got uprooted, and he didn't care at all, uh, was the impression I got. Of course, you must have been horrified and devastated. (laughs) I don't think so, not particularly. I I think I am also fairly unfazed by it. I think I'd only only seen the tree a couple of times, to be honest. (laughs) And and calling it Newton's tree is perhaps generous. Maybe maybe it's a bit bit apocryphal, perhaps. This is is what I said exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Uh, So, uh, well, so we were contacted by Andrew. So, Thank you, Andrew, for writing in. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, so so Andrew is uh, has has asked us about a very a fairly broad question. He says that he's a, a mechanical and manufacturing engineer, and he said that one thing that's mesmerized him is resolution of measurement error calculations in general, and was interested in how these things fit into the theoretical side of physics. So um, this sort of reading this this email, I was I was. Uh, 
I thought it was a very interesting question, but uh, one that I didn't feel very qualified to answer myself because I, I don't deal with measurements at all or, or data at all in my, uh, in my PhD. But it got me thinking about um, a conversation that uh, James and I had uh, a little while ago on, you know, on the, the research topics that, that he works on and specifically on you know, how you calculate errors in, in particle physics and how you sort of propagate these errors through your, through your calculations and the kind of difficulty associated with quantifying like how good these methods are and uh, you know and and really how how successful they are in general so that's kind of the question for today i think is you know we'll, we'll talk through a bit more about um you know what, what james's research is maybe a bit about uh you know what we know about proton structure and what there is left to find out and i guess yeah broadly around this this theme of um how do we quantify how good the knowledge is that we have about particle physics? So, yeah, um, maybe we can just dive into uh, some intro to, you know, <laughs> intro to the proton. So what is it that you're actually trying to study about these, uh, about these things, James? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, so... Um... Uh, the proton is, is kind of a, a, a super interesting particle uh, in, in particle physics at the moment because it's, it's, it's the central object of study at the LHC, so the Large Hadron Collider. Um, it, it, the Large Hadron Collider smashes together protons, beams of protons, uh, and it measures what comes out when we do the collision. So we, we see lots of junk comes out and we detect it and uh, we infer some, some things about the collision as a result of the, the stuff that we see. Um, but protons themselves are quite complicated objects. Uh, they're, they're quite difficult to get a hold of in terms of the theory um, because they, they are not uh, elementary particles. They are composite particles that are composed mm -hmm. of smaller, uh, smaller uh, particles that we think are elementary particles. Um, in particular, they're composed of quarks. Um, so you, you may have heard that they're composed of two up quarks and a down quark. <laughs> but this is not the, uh, the whole story. So uh, part, uh, a, proton is, a proton is not just uh, a collection of like, it's, a, it's not a bag containing these three particles. It really is kind of like more like a bubbling soup of particles where uh, there's lots of uh, virtual exchanges between these, uh, these 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 uh, these quarks these up and the uh, these two ups and these downs uh, so so uh, on a, it, a, a perhaps a more uh, accurate statement is to say that on average the proton is really a, like two ups and two downs and uh, we 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 uh, there's actually a, a, this this virtual soup that's going on at the same time uh, one of the biggest constituents in this kind of like virtual soup is is gluons in particular which are kind of the the glue holding together the proton um, and uh, they account for about fifty percent of the proton structure a lot of the time so yeah um, but there's also lots of other particles that can appear as well so there's strange quarks charm quarks or lots of antimatter that can appear in the proton as well uh, in much smaller quantities but it can be important and so when we fire two protons at one another it's important to understand the structure of the proton where in in terms of predicting what kind of results we're going to be getting out um, and modeling that structure is 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 complicated as you can imagine because of the the this, the, the, the huge amount of uh, interactions that are going on inside the huge uh, like kind of like virtual uh, stuff inside. It was very uh, frustrating that that quantum mechanics doesn't give us this nice. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't sort of obey this nice picture that we have of it. <laughs> exactly. Two it ups would, and a down. Yeah. It would be very nice if it was just you know like some billiard balls being fired at one another and you know like <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So. Um, 
But uh, to, to an extent, though, like um, we can. Uh, th- th- this is this is when we actually do make predictions. We 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 kind of to an extent try to 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 stay close to the classical picture as much as possible and try to 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 add on the co- kind of quantum corrections. So um so when we actually do make predictions in terms of firing a proton at another proton, uh, the kind of the standard uh, the standard way of generating predictions is uh, due originally due to Feynman actually. So in terms of the the, the model that is used uh, and it's something called the parton model for the proton mm-hmm. um, and what we what we do in the parton model is we assume that the proton is traveling really really quickly um, so it's traveling very very close to the speed of light which is roughly true for colliders so yeah so yeah the, the protons move very very quickly mm-hmm. um, so we fire fire them at one another and as a result of kind of special relativistic effects um, so uh, we we have this time dilation effect for the proton so viewed from like the the reference frame of the other proton mm-hmm. there's the, we have this this time dilation and on on the kind of scales that are appropriate for this time dilation it looks like uh, the interactions inside the proton have to take place over a very long time as we approach the kind of the collision uh, so so in fact you know like the, the you can approximate at the moment of collision that the the interactions between the the, the constituents of the proton are happening very slowly so you can imagine that perhaps they're like not actually interacting very much you can treat them essentially as billiard balls at the moment of collision so these are the sorry these are the quarks that and the gluons as well that are also the gluons as well so yeah so unfortunately you do have to kind of do you have to treat okay, all of the constituents yeah. as well fairly <laughs> um but yeah so so the ups and the downs but also the gluons and also the other constituents um you can imagine that at the moment of collision you there's actually just one constituent perhaps interacts with one constituent of the other proton and they go through some sort of what's called a hard collision uh they do some they do some things you, you can calculate you know like uh, this 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 hard uh, scattering between the two um and a load of products are created as a result so which uh, they all turn into quarks, but uh, they, all of these quarks interact, and there's some sort of long-distance physics which turns them into particles uh, uh, that, that can be detected. So, presumably, it, it, the kind of classical thing, right, is that you're imagining that these, on the timescales you're dealing with, all of these parts of the proton are not interacting interacting with one another. Exactly. And then you're saying that there's there's also a billiard ball kind of interaction with the with the other proton. So, so there's you, you're not treating that interaction between one part of the proton and another part of the other proton as quantum mechanical. No, not not at this stage. Yeah. So, so at the moment of at the moment of collision, we treat it essentially as like classical. So, um, when, okay. when we compute at what's called tree level in quantum field theory, but um, you can add some quantum corrections to this this hard hard scattering as well. So you can add quantum effects on top of that. Um, but this is kind mm-hmm. of uh, at this point we've got kind of a handle on what's what's been ejected from the proton and what's interacting with another <laughs> another ejection from the other proton um though there is there is another quantum aspect to it though so uh, so, so this this you can imagine it's basically a purely classical interaction so you know, this kind of hard hard scattering interaction is what it's called mm-hmm. the the quantum aspect is that we don't really know what's going to be ejected okay there is this this inherent like you know, the, the, the quantum soupiness to do with the proton that we we we, we don't really know how much there is of everything at any given time um and these are the things that we we parameterize the proton in terms of the the the, the, the functions that we used to tell us how much there is of each constituent are called uh, parton distribution functions uh, and they basically capture all of the quantum weirdness that we can't describe nicely using um, using quantum field theory uh, mainly because of the, these effects are the, the, the very strong the strong interactions we can't really write down nice kind of like nice nice uh, expansions and we can't make predictions very easily with these these things 
Um, so yeah, so so the, the, these functions are unknown functions which tell us yeah like roughly how much there is of each constituent at, at a given time. Uh, specifically, though, they, they, these functions actually depend on the momentum of the pro uh, so the momentum of the, the constituents, and also the the, the energy of the proton. Um, so they've got a couple of like functional dependence. Uh, uh, so they're, they're 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 functions of two variables, um, and uh, you you yeah, they're, they're they're essentially like probability densities, if you like, as well. So they're telling you, you know, like what is the probability I'm going to get a gluon coming out and being the thing that participates uh, if the proton is going at the specific energy, you know, like um, and what is the probability that I'm going to get an up being ejected and that being the thing that participates yeah yeah so as you change the maybe as you dial up the energy the probability that you'll you'll see i don't know some muon being ejected is going is going to go up or down or something like that yeah that's exactly the kind of thing that you you expect yeah so like as the energy changes yeah you you can get different different things coming out um mm. there's also another kind of probability aspect which is how much of the momentum is going to be carried by that constituent so um so yeah, so okay. when 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 the up is ejected it might carry a bit more momentum and the the remaining fragment carries the rest of the momentum that it initially had. Um, and depending on how much it gives, it changes the, the, the resulting like the, the resulting products. Um, so there's right. also this kind of probabilistic aspect, which also is described by these functions too as well. So these are kind of these, these unknown functions basically tell you all the things you don't know about the interaction. So uh, the, the stuff that you can't describe in terms of these billiard balls. So the inherent like quantumness of the situation is packaged into these unknown functions that we say we are ignorant of, we, we can't really calculate them. Um, so we, we've, got to, we've got to somehow somehow get access to them and the way that we do it do it is using experimental data we try and infer them uh, from from the experiments um, and so you, you said this is these are experiments happening in the LHC do you get all of your data from the LHC or, or do you no, get it from elsewhere as well we, we have got we've got data from other experiments as well that goes into these kind of determinations of these functions so um, so the LHC is is uh, clearly, like it's, it's the it's the main collider that's operating at the moment, along with the like the Tevatron. Um, uh, so, so the LHC is important in terms of a lot of the data that we get, but a lot of the data is also legacy data from from old experiments, from you know, like experiments in the the eighties and the nineties and things like that. So, um, so uh, from colliders that collided electrons and protons together, uh, and these can actually these can be. A bit more useful, actually, in the determination of proton structure, because there's only one proton in this, and the electron is fundamental. So the electron doesn't have this kind of like this right. this quantum. Yeah, you know, there's going there are quantum effects, but it's it's, it's mm -hmm. not it's not got this this issue. You're, you're taking out a huge huge number of variables. From <laughs> exactly, things, exactly. It makes things a lot yeah. easier to, to to probe the structure of the proton. Sure. Um, but it's from experiments that that were done at um, like like Desi in Germany. So like um like uh, things like uh, the Herrera experiments or the Zeus experiments. So yeah. Um, but okay. these are mostly like legacy legacy data. But yeah. I don't want to like jump the gun or anything, but, uh, you know, my understanding is that in order to get as accurate a picture as possible and be able to say anything definitively, you know, you can't just collide, you know, 20 protons together. You have to collide like 20 trillion. I don't know, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> before you can say anything yeah this is this is absolutely true yeah yeah so um it's yeah you you because of the like the probabilistic nature of these things uh, you, you really do need to like high statistics in order to actually infer anything useful what are the the sort of like quantities of collisions that we would be talking about in order to 
be able to, you know, have enough power to statistical power to say something. Oh goodness me! Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't know exactly. <laughs> Sorry, numbers, that's but, uh, really putting you on the spot there. Yeah, Sorry no, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. Um, uh, I, ooh, I feel like I, I want to say like ten to the eight collisions or something like the number of collisions okay. that the LHC has done like to this to date or something. I don't know. Um, right, right. That's possibly wrong. It's possibly wrong by like orders of magnitude, but you know, like, know, like the, 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 the number is like like is, is the number that's come to mind, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, so it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. Could, could you say that's like a point one of a of a giga collision? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> giga I guess ten you, to the yeah, nine. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> so. Like yeah, that, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly, possibly. Yeah, you can tell that I, I'm mostly a theorist, and that yeah, I have no idea what the numbers are. You know, like, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I ask then? Have there been so obviously the most famous discovery from the LHC is the Higgs, and was that like does this parton model have some uh, part to play in that discovery yes yeah or definitely in, in other discoveries it definitely does so yeah so like whenever whenever you collide protons together then the, 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 this is important so having having an okay. understanding of these functions is important um so so you know understanding proton structure is absolutely essential in making any predictions basically for the lhc so um mm -hmm. uh, of course it's only one ingredient of essential predictions that you need um obviously you need to understand this hard cross section as well so the billiard ball interactions and that's something else mm -hmm. that people do they do very very high order calculations uh, involving this kind of like this hard scattering also involving quantum corrections there as well, so it's not it's not purely classical actually. So it's a bit of a yeah. But it's a, yeah. But um, so that that's another another key aspect as well. People look at like hadronization as well, which is the sort of thing that you get at the detector because quarks are not the things that you get at the detector in the end. Lots of stuff happens in after after the billiard ball interaction. You get you get this effect called parton showering. So there's loads and loads of different ingredients wow. that go in. Okay. Sounds very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> hadronization then is is what exactly is that? Like it's it's sort of quarks becoming hadrons in some way. That's the idea, yeah. So so quarks have this property that they are they are called confined. Okay, in that you mm -hmm. you you cannot see a quark on its own. So um, uh, it's yeah, it's okay. impossible to see a quark on its own. It must be a constituent of a hadron. So um, so it must be part of sure. a composite particle. Um, cool. and that that means that if if the part of middle model was literally true, uh, there would be difficulties because you know you would you would have a quark interacting with a quark, and then you know like two quarks come out the other. Ends, you know, you're, you could, you should see the quarks. Um, so something has to happen to the quarks. So yeah, so um, so and that that, that that procedure is is it, it's 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 a, a kind of two phase procedure. One is called like parton showering, so where the quarks mm -hmm. undergo loads of virtual interactions, um, and the the end result is something called hadronization of the quarks, and uh, you get composite particles out at the end. Um, but this mm -hmm. is all, uh, yeah. This is this is another highly complicated thing that people model and try to understand well. Um, but this is distinct from the the proton structure, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, just so I know that we've covered all our bases. So a hadron is just for some definitions. A hadron is is three uh, is is any combination of quarks. That's right. right. That's a, it's a composite particle. Can, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and if you if you were to try, <laughs> if someone if a listener has never heard of a quark before. What would you what would you say like and and they have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, they may well have stopped listening by now. But <laughs> <laughs> apologies if, if that's the case. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, uh, what's the like? How we how should we think of these things? Like, why do we need quarks in order to describe you know nature? 
Um, that, 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 that's a good question. So yeah, so so um, I mean, quarks, quarks. Uh, the fact that you can't see them uh, means that it's uh, you, you, you might assume that it's quite difficult as a result to deduce the existence of quarks. Yeah, you it might seems say, like oh, there's some there's, philosophical there, problem there's, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if, if we've never seen a quark, so therefore you know, like why should we believe that they exist? So yeah, um, yeah. There's there's like varieties of evidence to be honest. Um, like starting in like the 50s and 60s, which all combine together mm -hmm. to like to imply the existence, the indirect existence of quarks. Um, one of the most convincing things is actually like um, the, yeah. the 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 like the distribution of baryon structure. So um, so baryons are combinations of three quarks, but people didn't know that at the time. They just saw these particles, um, and they categorized them using properties that these things have, and put them in you know, like nice diagrams and stuck them all together. Um, but they mm -hmm. realized that um, the if you want to describe these particles quantumly, uh, there is no consistent way of doing it without there being some additional hidden degree of freedom uh, that must be hidden behind these kind of these particles and people initially said ah oh, you know like well we're gonna just add a, chuck this extra degree of freedom in you know like just to make all the calculations work but other pieces of evidence basically suggested over time that you know like really the the the, the thing behind this was this kind of like this quark structure inside the baryons um so and, uh, and the, 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 so this this kind of like this distribution of baryon structure um the 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 combination with the first experiments involving proton collisions where the parton model was found to be really really a really good description at the time the first the, the the parton model was introduced, the quark, quarks were not necessarily the thing that was inside the proton, but any old constituent was just chucked in as, you know, like the thing that you could describe it with. Um, in fact, if you try and describe constituent, if you try and like come up with a composite model of the proton that doesn't use quarks, it uses a different type of particle, um, then you'll find that it disagrees with experimental evidence. So this is another, like a, another good evidence for the existence of these things inside the protons. Um, so, so yeah, so, so there's, there's lots of evidence that kind of points to the existence of these things, these, this more fundamental mm. particle inside protons so yeah, and inside general composite particles but, yeah, and when, so. when you say there's a, a degree of freedom that you need in order to describe uh, to describe experimental evidence are you talking there about the the, fl the flavor of quark up down strands etc or are you talking about color uh, specifically color is, is the thing that okay. we're missing yeah yeah so are you so, able so, to describe yeah. color a little bit for, uh, <laughs> for the yes listener? yeah yeah so so the the theory that, that quarks fit into is the theory is a theory called quantum chromodynamics uh which is uh is 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 like quantum electrodynamics, uh, which is the theory that involves uh, like electric charges and how this interact, like how photons and electrons interact. But it upgrades the idea of charge to being uh, a, to being actually a combination of three three colors instead, uh, which are called red, green, and blue. Uh, so quarks carry this extra thing called color charge, but it's really like you know like a a, a, a combination of colors. So it's a mix of colors that, that they also have. Um, and this, it turns out that this is the correct theory to to, to kind of uh, to, to add this extra degree of freedom that describes the baryon structure correctly. And um, so um, this this idea of having this thing this 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 color the color on top. It's not actually literal color, of course. You know, like yeah, so it's it's not like the part. It's not exactly like the quarks yeah. are actually colored red. It's just the fact that there were three things that were needed to describe it. It's a space of three things and combinations of these three. And people were like, yeah. oh, you know, what are three things? Are oh, three colors? You know, like let's just call it call it these three <laughs> colors instead. Um, so it's, it's it's not exactly like it was. It was. That, uh, that's not going to get confusing at <laughs> all. No, no. <laughs> people didn't think about this at the time, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think physicists just grab the. First, uh, the first, you know, 
metaphor or, or term that's uh, useful for describing what the maths is saying and then <laughs> yeah, they just so, stick with it <laughs> basically i mean probably a million other things would have been better to call it but you know like we're stuck with it now yeah, so, yeah. But, fair uh, enough <laughs> okay cool so we've, we've sort of got an idea of of the structure of the proton why we have evidence for for uh, believing that that is in fact the structure but you mentioned that you're also looking for extra physics hidden in that structure somewhere um are you able to sort of describe that a little bit yeah yeah that's true so that's that's the main thing that i that i work on here in cambridge the the group here works on in cambridge so when, when people normally kind of determine these these functions which describe proton structure the parton distributions um when they're normally normally extracted from data uh they're normally extracted from data under the assumption of the standard model um so you normally say here's my data here's my theory which involves these functions i compare the two of them and i extract the functions okay um that's broad brushstrokes kind of what you do um so um but of course, when you do that, you have to choose what theory you're going to be using. So, and the theory that people use is the standard model. Um, so, and people say, "Oh, okay, we'll extract these functions." And as a result, you get some functions which uh, which work well, assuming that the standard model is correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. You might reasonably say, well, what if the standard model is not correct? Uh, what if there are things uh, beyond the standard model that uh, could help better explain the data? What if we added extra degrees of freedom to our model? Um, would we get better fits to the data in that case? And that's kind of the, the basic philosophy that we work with here in Cambridge. It's kind of uh, the idea is, um, so it was, it's, I don't know, an example of things that, that I've worked on is uh, like dark matter constituents inside the proton. Mm-hmm. So um, so one thing that you could add to proton structure is, is something called a dark photon. Uh, you could say, are like what if there was this additional photon inside the proton there is of course a photon already there because we know that photons exist um, but what if there was this extra dark photon so um uh, this 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 hypothetical particle which m- it might be an example of something like dark matter what if we added that um and the idea you you could then say you go through the logical conclusions of adding that particle uh, you could make predictions using that theory compare to the data and try to extract the functions and if the functions that you get fit the data better um, you might reasonably say that you know, like, okay, there might be some evidence here to say to suggest the existence of this dark photon instead. Um, so, so it's 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 kind of a a, a, a a possible avenue for like discovery of new particles, indirect discovery of new particles. So, just talking about bad terminology, the the surely dark photon is is the worst named particle <laughs> possibly yeah, yeah that's, that, that, it's it's quite it's, it's a pretty bad name yeah yeah so i mean it's it, I, 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 perhaps yeah so it's it's invisible as well i don't know yeah so yes yeah, so you can't see it you know like anyway yeah so, um, but, but, yeah it's, it's it's a it's a pretty bad name yeah yeah um but i, I guess fair, fair. The, the name is given mainly because of the kind of the interactions it would have would be similar to a photon but uh they would be interacting with kind of a dark sector in kind of the same way and, and kind of like a mirror sure. Universe type thing, you know, but they would all be dark yeah. particles, and somehow they would interact a bit with the standard model particles. So you might be able to see them a little bit, but not very much. But anyway, though um, it, it's, it's worth saying that actually, the the, the I, I've singled out a specific particle here and said, ah, oh, you know, like what if there is a dark photon inside the inside the proton? This is not uh, strictly what we do most of the time here in Cambridge. Most of the time, what we do is we try to go with more kind of model independent approaches. So we don't say, oh, yeah, like, let's just guess a particle and see if it exists. You know, like, I don't know, like, just pick, you know, because obviously, you know, this is not a sustainable approach. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what, we, what we tend to do instead is work with what are called aff- 
effective field theories, which are supposed to parametrize like deviations from the standard model in all the possible directions you could go. And they do them in, in uh, an effective field theory is a tool which organizes how important these deviations would be. So you can say, ah, here are all the deviations that would show up first, and here are all the deviations which would show up at sub-leading level, and here are all the other deviations, etc., etc. Um, and you can then fit all of the, the parameters in this, uh, this kind of like this effective field theory framework uh, alongside your proton structure functions. And if you get a signal that one of the deviations is important, you can say, ah, there is something beyond the standard model that generates this kind of like this weird interaction between standard model particles we weren't expecting. Um, that must reveal some sort of new physics that we don't know about, basically. So, um, so this is this is the the idea of an effective field theory framework, and that's kind of more generally what we do because we don't really want to just pin our hopes on just random models. So yeah, so we try to be a bit more agnostic. <laughs> so um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So these these deviations that you're dealing with in effective field theory, those are not the same as new particles necessarily. They they could be sort of somehow combinations of of new particles or something like that exactly yeah so so um so anything so that the idea is that in in this kind of this effective field theory that we work with uh, any any of the deviations we see will they would have to be generated by some unknown theory um, and the point is, at the at the energy scales that we have currently access to, the unknown theory, uh, the way it manifests is by, by via interactions of the existing standard model particles. Um, so the way that you see it is is via this this these kind of like interactions you weren't expecting between the standard model particles. Um, a great example of this is actually in the 70s and the 80s. Actually, people didn't know about the existence of the W boson. Okay, uh, and mm. not knowing the existence of the W boson means that you can't have certain interactions between uh, muons, neutrinos, and a couple of the, 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 the other fermions. So it looks like um, if, you, if you don't know about the existence of the W boson, you go to an experiment, you, you can do an experiment and you can see that, oh, actually it looks like there's some weird interaction between four standard model particles that I wasn't expecting so, uh, because I don't know about the existence of the W boson. Um, so you can say, you, you can write down a list of all the possible interactions you're not expecting and say, you know, like, okay, you know, if I see any of these ones, then it must be the consequence of some new physics that I'm unaware of. And it turned out that later on people discovered the existence of the, they discovered the W boson, which explained this. Um, this oh, that's super thing. interesting. So yeah, effective field theory is going to be very nice. Yeah, yeah. For those of us who continue to not know of the existence of the W boson, can you describe <laughs> what what it is and <laughs> ah, why, okay. why we the standard model needs it? Ah, yeah. So so the W boson is is one of the one of the force carrying particles in the standard model. So um so it, it carries what's called the the weak force um, along with the Z boson. Um so mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it it's just, it was discovered I think yeah in the seventies and eighties uh, and it's important in what's called weak decays. So um so uh, it, it's it, it's it, it describes things like um I don't know the beta decay is something that perhaps people have heard of in terms of like radioactivity inside of nuclei um, this is this particle explains how that occurs basically so um, is the idea um, but it's it's it, it's worth saying that you know like whilst, whilst we called it the weak force you know like it is it's 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 you know like it's it's it is it's, it's, it's incredibly weak compared to you know like uh, the other forces that exist in terms of the standard model but it's not as weak as gravity which is really really the weakest force um, but yeah because it, it is important enough that you know we can see effects of it in collider experiments but yeah, so, yeah. when people were seeing these signatures of interactions that they knew couldn't happen given the the particles that they knew existed what was their sort of explanation before the w boson was independently discovered or did they did they just say well the data is 
Incorrect. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the, unfortunately, the understanding of the, the corresponding mathematics at the time was not quite as good as our understanding now. Um, uh, so one, okay. uh, one, one of the problems is, like, the interactions that they, they, they saw, um, these interactions between muons, neutrinos, and uh, quarks. Um, so um, the, the, this interaction that we, they saw was like, uh, they, 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 they were like, oh, it's just another interaction we're missing from the model. We'll just add it in. So And you just chuck it in the model and say, oh, it's fine. Now we've got this other interaction. But it turns out that mm -hmm. some type, some types of interactions are actually banned from the standard model. Um, they are what are, what are called non-renormalizable mm -hmm. interactions. Um, and they're such that if you try and include your quantum corrections, you will find that you cannot include quantum corrections consistently in terms of the theory framework. Um, so um, it, the, these kind of interactions do not work out. Um, you know, like it's, imp it's impossible for them to be like fundamental descriptions of nature. There has to be something right. behind them. So yeah, uh, the maths doesn't work um, out at all. In, in, and if we believe, you know, like the maths of particle physics, quantum field theory to be correct, then it can't, this cannot be an allowed interaction. But it can be something that you might see in an experiment and say, oh, you know, like there is actually, we can, we can say that this thing is a signal for this interaction, but therefore that reveals that there must be some deeper new physics that we don't know about. But, and this is kind of a, a good direction to pursue is come up with models that might describe the interaction. Um, so, um, yeah. Was what happened the, the case that they saw these interactions um, between particles, they wrote down a theory which included these sort of direct interactions between the various particles. Yep. And then later people said, oh, wait, hang on a sec, these interactions that you've written down are non-renormalizable, the, the whole theory breaks or... or <laughs> Or did they sort of know that it was that there were issues? I think the sequence was that people discover, discovered that they're, they're, discover these interactions and they're like, oh, we'll add yep. this in. This, this gives us a good description of weak decays. Now we have a complete theory mm -hmm. of that. And then people discovered the W boson and they were like, oh, well, actually, mm -hmm. that, that explains it a bit better. So let's chuck that in instead right. and get rid of these interactions. And then people discovered that actually these kind of interactions are not. They, they, you, ah. you, you, you could have actually, you know, like known a little bit earlier on that that was, that was something. Yeah. So, um, so in, yeah. in the kind of like the 80s, people realized that, yeah, like a little later. 80s people were like, oh, you know, actually, we could have realized this a bit earlier on that, you know, like that there was something beyond the, the, the theory that we currently have. And that's something that, that, yeah. that is now taken to heart in terms of like most new physics searches. People now like strongly take, take into account this effective field theory framework. Um, so I say that this is sure. the, the, the best way to hunt for new physics. But yeah. maybe, maybe you just want to give us the, the sort of 30 second pitch of, <laughs> of quantum field theory and what, how it relates to particle physics. Sure, sure. So um, if that's okay. I'm yeah, asking yeah. a lot of you today, James. No, no, it's quite, it's quite <laughs> Right. I think you can you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Um, okay. So yeah. So quantum field theory is kind of our our best description of of, of nature as it stands today, uh, and it's it's it stems from what are called uh, where it stems from field theory. It's a quantum version of field theory. So it's a good name for for something in physics, which is unusual. <laughs> um, but uh, what, so, so what is a field theory? First of all, well, it's it's a theory where the fundamental things, uh, the fundamental the fundamental objects are fields um, instead of particles. So uh, uh, instead of like little billiard balls uh, in kind of kind of like Newtonian physics, uh, the kind of the, the standard description from the 1600s, uh, the fundamental degrees of freedom are these things that fill space and time, um, and uh, they're, they're they're more like basically like uh, big big blocks of jelly, if you like, that can wobble around, <laughs> and, you know, like move around in the middle. Um, so th this is what a field really is, and you're you're you might you might be familiar with the ideas of like the electric field or the magnetic field, something that fills all of all of space, and uh, mm -hmm. you can propagate waves through it by you know, like oscillating the field at different points. 
Um, mm. The revolutionary idea of quantum field theory is that, okay, all of the particles of, uh, that, uh, that we previously thought about, so things like, uh, the, like the electron, so you know, like things like the proton, uh, well, not the proton, but the constituents of the proton, um, all of these things also have their own field. So they also, like there is an electron jelly that also fills the universe, and oscillations in the electron jelly can cause uh, oscillations in uh, like the photon jelly and, like they're, they're, and corresponding with one another. They interact in different ways. Um, so how does the picture of so this, this and this is what quantum field theory is quantum field theory is kind of like the idea of having this field theory but then quantizing it so adding quantum effects on top of this so um uh, and it's worth saying, though, had, had, like I, I've just assert, said, oh, everything's now a field. You know, the electron is actually a field that fills the universe, and you know, like there's really an electron field. But I have been talking about particles the entire time. So what really is True. a particle? Um, well, a par <laughs> particle is kind of like a like a small excitation of the field. You know, like something that you know, um, it's not a billiard ball anymore, but it's kind of a local excitation. So you know, like, it's a small excitation that maybe we can detect. Um, so on large scales, it kind of looks like a particle. But you know, like um, so, so is, is the general idea, and we treat it in kind of like uh, when we when we actually do quantum field theory we treat things as like point like point like excitations so, you know like infinite excitations in you know, a small point to, to a good approximation this is how we might, how we might describe it so, um, mm -hmm. yeah. well thanks for that um just jumping back just a absolute whiplash here but uh <laughs> to go back to the non-renormalizable interactions that you were just talking about yeah when you're this might be a really naive question, but when you're doing your effective field theory uh, calculations, you're writing down these interactions that could uh, that could describe some sort of more fundamental physics or something on top of the standard model and seeing if they fit the data. Are you including non-renormalizable interactions in in those possible? things that you write down that's yeah that's exactly the idea so you know like yeah so we, we okay. include these non-renormalizable ones which we know are banned by 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 the, the, the theory <laughs> we're not allowed to use them but we add them on anyway because uh we, we 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 say okay you know like if we add one of these things and we add it to our theory and try and measure the effect of it then if we get uh, a contribution from it that's important in the data it describes the data better then it means that there must be that this operator is actually useful in the theory it must be there must be some way of replacing it with more fundamental new physics like wrong so um that we must we must be able to get rid of it eventually uh the point mm -hmm. is that we now have a better understanding of these non-renormalizable non -renormal, these non interactions in the idea that we think that they're only valid to consider as interactions up to a specific energy scale beyond mm -hmm. which you have to get rid of them and they won't work after that so you know like um so so, yeah, yeah. so and this was fine when people were looking at like the the w boson discovery in the in the sense that you know like the they were only working with very low energy experiments and they were saying oh you know like well, the theory is working perfectly fine and you're like but it couldn't be the fundamental theory because actually these operators will break down at some point these these contributions don't work anymore so at, at the level of the, like the lhc now we're working at like 30 13 tera electron volts is the the amount that, that, that protons are collided at and this is okay for us because we can now say that's the energy scale at which beyond which we have no guarantee our theory is going to work after that there's going to be some point at which we expect it to break down but we don't know where that point is um, and you know, like it's okay to use these effective field theory kind of like contributions that are non-renormalizable uh, as long as we we promise later on that we're going to get we're going to we're going to fix it um, <laughs> yeah. so punk rock <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. sort of like you're building a car, which you know is going to like <laughs> fall apart if you go yeah, past yeah. seventy miles an hour. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like yeah, like safety notice on the car, exactly. Saying so, yeah, do, do, do do not exceed, you know, like this 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 speed. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating. And because people were were very skeptical about this whole renormalization thing for a long time, right? Um, I think 
was it, it was Dirac who I think was was really thought this was all you know absolute rubbish. Yeah, I think I think Feynman also like it, it was very unhappy with it as well. I think yeah, I don't know. Right, like, I, don't okay. know. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember specifically who. There's someone called it like Dippy Nonsense at some point. I think which was like <laughs> I don't know. Like I don't know. Like I think there was. Like, I don't know. But but um, but people really kind of changed their view of renormalization. I think and the idea like mm. in the 80s uh, when people started mm-hmm. kind of viewing it in this kind of this effective field theory, theory framework instead. Uh, one of the problems yeah. is that it, it first appeared in quantum field theory in the 40s. Uh, actually, when quantum field theory was first being developed and people tried to look at these kind of interactions and they realized that if they tried to make predictions with them they got loads of infinities as their answers and they, they were like they were predicting that oh, you know, the, the electron mass should be infinite actually or something and it's, it, which is it's clearly clearly nonsense um, but people started to understand how to deal with these infinities properly in a sensible way um, later in the century and the problems that quantum field theory was plagued with initially were fixed basically over time so people started to understand why, why they happened Um, right at least to the to the satisfaction of physicists not necessarily to the satisfaction of mathematicians but you know that's (laughs) that's another story so yeah yeah. (laughs) so i i promise that we'll get to the question about errors very soon but just to just i feel like tie a bow on on this part of the discussion the effective part of effective field theory how does that come in? Like, what is why? Why is that different to just sort of regular old quantum field theory? Uh, so the the effective refers to the fact that it's only valid below a certain scale. So you know, like, so it's a, uh, it's it's an effective theory that you know, like, is 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 it only works in, the, in this kind of like regime. So you know, um, cool. but really, it, the, the the actual description is more complicated and it's like hidden and we don't mm. understand it. But we can we can use this this as an effective placeholder, if you like, yeah, before we get yeah. the actual theory. So. Um, Right, so it's the car that it's the car that falls apart. Exactly, exactly. You get too fast. Yeah. <laughs> so another another example of an effective theory could be something like the fluid model of uh, of water or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's the sort of thing that we're thinking about. So effective field theories, yeah, okay. like effective theories in general occur all sorts of times and all sorts of places mm-hmm. in physics. Mm-hmm. And maybe a, a, a great example is that, um, I don't know, like uh, modeling gravity is just something that pulls mm-hmm. go straight down. You're like imagining that the Earth is flat and, you know, like when you chuck balls up, you know, they just come straight down and gravity works at whatever it is, 9.8 meters per second squared or something. I don't know, like, yeah, so um, <laughs> that's that's an effective theory of gravity when you are you are kind of at the human scales on the surface of the earth but when you're working with the planets you need to like treat gravity as like this inverse square law instead you know like it's not really like mm-hmm. 9.8 meters per second and it points straight down anymore it's it's really much yeah. more complicated so yeah but when you yeah. when you when you think about it at these small scales this is a good enough theory that works um, sure, yeah, sure. So. <laughs> and then i guess newton's theory of gravity the inverse square law and all of that itself is an effective theory of general relativity. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So you, if you if you look at appropriate limits of of general relativity, you can recover Newtonian gravity. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, before we move on, uh, Brian, do you do you have any any further questions about about what we've talked about so far? This idea of you're trying to carve out, you know, look at in, these interactions that still need some kind of description or updated explanation like do you have a specific example of something that you're seeing and it's like we're not sure yet so let's let's take a look is there is there like a specific case of that that you can talk about 
Uh, unfortunately not. So you know, so every, everything, okay. <laughs> uh, everything that we get with with all our fits is 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 fully consistent with the standard model. So you know, like so so we find that you know, like uh, that all of all of the 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 interactions that we propose these these non renormalized inter- renormalizable interactions in the effective field theory, they they're all perfectly consistent with the standard model. <laughs> they, them being zero basically. So so mm-hmm. as, as far as we can tell with the current data that we have um, and all of the scenarios that we've thought about so far, yeah, they're, the standard model works perfectly fine, um, which is is disappointing but you know like but you know, like um, but you know there, there we are you know like yeah like it's it's, it, it's just telling you it works it works great and we've not seen any new physics just yet um, but yeah yeah uh, but it's yeah. certainly possible that yeah in the future you might you might you might see some more deviations as we get to higher and higher energies and things get more right right yeah. with, with i mean there are, are there not examples potentially not to full significance yet but to i don't know something like three sigma where which could be sort of beyond the stand model uh, signatures? Uh, not quite. So yeah. So um, in terms of the, the the biggest deviation that we've seen is is two sigma deviations actually. Yeah. So um, um, in, in uh, okay, the vast okay. majority of the time we see one sigma deviations. But yeah, you're right that in in particle physics you expect a five sigma deviation before you can claim that anything is actually successful. Um, but yeah. What what I was thinking of is uh, I've. It's like the sp- the magnetic moment of the of the muon or something like that, isn't that a? That's true. So there are there are actually there are indications that there is physics yeah. beyond the standard model, but not in our uh-huh. effective field theory approaches. So yeah, in terms of any effective yeah, field theory we do, we always get nice consistent results with the standard model. But certainly there are experimental. Uh, there is uh, there has been experimental evidence that there is some sort of deviation from the standard model. Uh, one one example yeah. is yeah the, the magnetic mo- uh, ma- ma- the magnetic uh, dipole moment of the muon, uh, which is measured to be. Uh, inconsistent with standard model predictions by about three sigma. So yeah, and though <laughs> that also depends on what predictions you use. So yeah, so um, so so uh, there are there are lots of ways that you could obtain the theory predictions for these kind of these the, 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 these experiments. Uh, one way is using the kind of like the perturbative quantum field theory framework that we use. Um, another alternative is to use what's called lattice field theory, where um, you can you can also get results for this. They're actually a lot closer to the results that you get for the for the for the magnetic dipole moment of the muon so um, so that kind of is is not necessarily uh, like something that is pointing to anything uh, there are other other things though there's there's things like um, what called b anomalies which uh, they're, they're, they are also in in slight slight uh, conflict with the standard model uh, they are to do with like ratios of b meson decays to muons and to electrons which should be the same in the standard model but are not observed to be the same two three sigma uh, that is uh, some of them are explained and have been updated due to like poor measurement but uh, and some of them still exist but not so much anymore. Um, yeah. And another great example that has happened recently, actually, is the W boson mass itself. Actually, so we've been talking about the W boson. Uh, this is a uh, this is a possible indication of new physics. Uh, there was a W boson measurement by uh, the Tevatron, so um, in America, which was in I think seven sigma conflict with the other measured values of the W boson. Um, this measurement has been like highly questioned, though, and the theory predictions that have gone okay. into it also highly questioned, and people are not not too terribly satisfied with it. So yeah, so it can be quite contentious, to be honest. You know, like claiming new physics. Yeah. Obviously, it's you know, like a big thing. So you know, like yeah. So yeah. Um, so, yeah but, um, <laughs> can I can I just suggest um, we've we've been talking for a little while already. Maybe we hit pause on this conversation and leave the rest for next week's episode. Yeah. What do you think, Brian? Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Sure.
So, as always, thank you, everybody, for listening to Question Field. Uh, especially thank you to Andrew for your question, which we will get to, we promise. <laughs> um, and a big thank to James for joining us and talking to us. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> You've been listening to Question Field. Question Field is a game media production and is produced by its hosts, Campbell McLaughlin and Brian Buchanan. For more information, please check us out on Instagram at questionfieldpod, on Twitter at questfieldpod, and on TikTok at questionfield. If you have a question you'd like to submit, or would simply like to leave a message, please send us an email at questionfieldpod at gmail.com. Recently, the James Webb Telescope discovered five new stars located in the review section of your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening.